0: Welcome to Talent Hub Talk. I am Ben Duncan, and this is a place where prominent and inspirational figures from both the local ANZ and global Salesforce Ohana share their stories. In today's episode, I am joined by Atif Saad. Atif is the CTO and co-founder of Sasguru. Atif has been a client of mine in the past and has a broad range of experiences in the Salesforce ecosystem. He has worked for an end customer to deliver a Salesforce program, joined a consulting firm as their COO, and helped them scale and realize a sale to a global systems integrator, where he then ran a large Salesforce practice and faced the challenges of team retention and attraction through the COVID period. Now at SaaS Guru, Atif and his team are looking to solve the cloud skills crisis by creating the bridge between learning and certifications. In this episode, Atif shares the insight on his career and all of the things he has experienced during his time in the Salesforce ecosystem, plus what he is most excited about with SaaS Guru. I hope you enjoy the episode. Atif, thank you very much for joining us from what I believe to be a sunny Dubai. It sure is. Thanks for having me, Ben. It's it's been great in Dubai, actually. So you're over there as a bit of a, a team building uh, exercise.
1: Yeah, we're about to launch our mobile app and we thought it would be much better for us all to be together in the same room. Yeah. So yeah, we, D- Dubai became a common ground for all of us. Uh, it's our first vacation. So we played hard and we worked hard. We've come, we come back home next week. So.
0: Yeah, very nice. But well, won't, we won't go into detail about how much play because everyone listening will be jealous. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's great that you're able to get away and, uh, and I guess see people face to face having uh, been through you know, the last couple of years to actually collaborate with your team face to face must be great.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You don't realize how much you miss being together in the same room uh, after COVID until you are actually in the same room Mm -hmm. and start collaborating. At least for me, that's been the case. We've all worked remotely for a very long time now for a couple of good couple of years. And working in the same room has just
0: been phenomenal. Yeah, for sure.
1: I'm glad that we we got a chance to do that.
0: Yeah, nice. Nice. Well, look, we've got a lot to talk about today. We're going to uh, cover the business you're in now towards the end of, of the, the episode, but um, I'm really keen to hear a bit more about you and, and your journey and, and your career to date. So I know you, I've known you for, for several years and I know what you've kind of done and, and the kind of roles you've had, but a lot of listeners won't, won't um, have come across your career before. And also, um, I guess we'll be interested in, in hearing right from the beginning. So when you look back at your earlier career, um, what did you kind of really want to do, and uh, was tech always something that you saw yourself kind of uh, working with? Tech
1: was always the dream, uh, to be quite honest. If I go back to my early days, uh, as most kids of the 90s that were doing high school in the 90s, uh, we wanted to do tech. Uh, tech was the thing. Uh, you, you know, computers were just becoming norm. Internet was still shitty and slow, so it was, it was hard. But back in the you know if I go back back in the mid '90s when I was doing my undergrad in US or trying to at the very least, I I saw there used to be this install and inspect factory uh, in Houston where I was studying, and I saw a few of my friends work there, and it became one of those things that I wanted to do the most uh, most in life. I wanted to work for a company that built computers that did computers, so it became a very you know it became a uh, somewhat obsessive that I wanted to do what they're doing, and perhaps wanted to be part of a computer business or an IT business. Uh, Didn't get a chance to do that in in Houston. Fast forward a few years, and I was in Dubai, uh, working uh, working in Dubai for a couple of years. Uh, That was in the early 2000s. And I was dropping my wife off to work, uh, or I used to drop her every day, to a place called Internet City in Dubai. Uh, This is when Dubai was just starting to expand and explode. And in that area, there used to be a lot of these buildings that were, you know, HPs and Microsoft, the giants of the of the time. Uh, and one of the buildings was Unisys. I used to see that building as, you know, as the Apple of today, like clean white building with red logos on it. And I just wanted to be part of that business. I'd walk, I'd walk past, I'd drive past, and I thought, what would it take to be part of this business, right? Like part of, and Unisys was always in the news at the time. They were doing really great. Again, didn't get a chance in Dubai either to work for IT. And then I landed in Australia a couple of years later. I would have applied for, God, a good, good 120, 130 roles or jobs for without, maybe and I would have gotten maybe four or five interviews out of it. And one of the interviews was in a company in Rhodes, in a, uh, and recruiter didn't tell me which company. So I was just madly trying to get to that business so that I could make that interview with probably $100 in my bank or 50 bucks in my bank, I can't remember now. So we really needed a job. I'd been in Australia for a good couple of months and didn't have the job. The market wasn't like it is today. It wasn't like people knocking on the door and going, do you want work? Uh, it was very different back in early 2000s in Australia. So anyways, we we got to that building. Uh, my wife was seven months pregnant. We ran from the train station, Rhodes train station, to that building. And as soon as I got to that building, I saw big red Unisys sign on that building. I still didn't believe that I'm in Unisys. I just thought it would be another floor, and I would be interviewing with someone else. But I walked into the building. It was the Unisys building. I interviewed with Unisys, and that was history. I had worked for Unisys for ten years. After that, in ten, in multiple roles, did IT, did project management, did operations, you name it. So yeah, I was fortunate to be honest. Uh, my my belief out of that is. Manifestation is real. You have to want something really, really badly, and the way I used to obsess over Unisys and ended up with a job here in Australia with them and worked for them for ten years is is just amazing. So yeah, that's what that's how I started my career in IT.
0: That could have gone horribly wrong, couldn't it? Going to an interview, you don't even know what the company is. Like, luckily, it was Unisys, and because <laughs> if you if the first question was why do you want to work here, that's great because you could explain why you did. <laughs> Whereas if it was some uh, other company, you'd have no idea.
1: I agree. I agree. I'd literally finished my uh, my assessment with the recruiter. You know, They gave the writing and the reading and all of that sort of stuff. I'd finished that and I was on my way home when she called and she said, listen, I've managed to get you an interview now. Do you want to go and do that? Can you make it? And I'm going, I've gone from the city back to West and I'm going, shit, I'm not going to make it. So I told, and I, I was only in Australia for two months. I had no idea where roads is. How do you get there? Where yeah. how do trains move? So, Mrs. went, all right, fine, I'll come with you. And that poor girl, like, she had to run. So, yeah, it would have gone horribly wrong had they asked me that question, but I'm glad she did
0: Yeah, Um, yeah, nice. She
1: did ask me that question and it worked out.
0: Yeah, awesome. And uh, yeah, I think you're right. Obviously, uh, there was something in that, right? The fact that you'd, uh, you'd had that vision and goal, and, and then ultimately it worked out. I think you're right around the manifestation. So obviously, you've been in management roles for quite some time now. And um, you, obviously, you were interested in tech, but you've gone down that kind of project management, program management and and leadership path, um, which is different to a lot of the people we've had on the podcast who you know, went and studied computer science and went down that path. So what was it about management that attracted you? And have you always? Did you find that you're always a good people manager?
1: I hope so. I think <laughs> so. Uh, the best best judge would be the people that I've uh, I've managed to work with or served, I guess. But uh, to be quite honest, I think people leadership is common sense. Uh, that's how I see it, anyways. In my early career, I people talk about good bosses, bad bosses, and in my early careers, I got a chance to work for some real assholes. Uh, to be quite honest, and when you work for someone like that and you want to drive change uh in perhaps how your life is one of the things i i started to pivot at least in my own thinking is i want to be in those shoes in their shoes and i want to do better so and how do you do better is in my opinion at least is is to be able to create a better support system so that you you know you, you stay human is perhaps the easiest part of of thinking about it you don't lose the human part of it and you stay connected to your people um, I remember uh, I was, again, in one of those 120 job interviews that I did when I first came to Australia, I interviewed for one of the fast fast food chains. And the way the restaurant manager communicated the rejection to me, it was heartbreaking. It was, it was It made me feel so small that I thought, well, surely there's a better way of doing this. And I just, I wanted to be in those shoes and do better. So I guess for me, what drives me is change. It drives me Uh, is ability to influence change or inflict change in people's lives for the better uh, and my own of course Uh, so yeah people leadership just became the natural progression of that uh, where I could do that affect change uh, and do better and show that there is a better way.
0: Do do you think um, leadership has changed over the years in in the sense that now like you know people are are there's a lot more focus on open communication around like mental health and empathy and things like this compared to what they used to be. So for anyone that's moving into the leadership world now, do they have to have a different set of skills to potentially people in the past or were good managers empathetic in the past anyway, but just they were the ones that stood out? It has changed. So short answer to
1: your question, I think, yes, 100% it's changed. There's so much acceptance. There's so much dialogue these days to You know about things that would otherwise, I guess, in the late 90s, would be considered taboo, and people won't even raise their voices around it. So yeah, it's 100% changed, and a lot of lot of the leaders today, I don't think, will have to go through the struggles of the late 90s, early 2000s. But having said that, even in my experience, like looking back in my 25 odd years of uh, of work experience, they weren't all bad. In fact, some of the people that I drove my energy from were amazing leaders, amazing bosses. You know, they became the reason why I am who I am today. Where I've achieved success because they uh, decided to invest in me, to give me opportunities, to teach me what they know. So, good leaders have always been around. It's not it's not new, but uh, they, you know, at least people now are more aware of what uh, people leadership is all about and how to how to affect someone else's uh, career in a positive way. So, if someone new was going into people leadership, I think. Those are the things to think about. Frankly speaking, you invest in other people's lives, in their professional and personal gain and growth. Uh, if you're able to do that, the rest of the business uh, will take care of itself. And what I find as, as a leader, the other advice, I guess, for people that are going into people leadership is know the art. Uh, being able to lead from example or from experience rather than academia is another thing that I find uh, is really really powerful and really useful for for people leaders they're respected people like uh working for someone that knows uh knows the, their work knows uh how to guide them and how to deal with them so those are perhaps a couple of uh, key ones for me is you know work for them and uh equally lead them by example
0: yeah nice yeah that makes a lot of sense so um if we move into the world of Salesforce, like what, how did you kind of get your break into the Salesforce world? And and at that point, you came in as a, a was it a project manager or a, a program manager? And how did that compare to delivering projects in other fields that you'd worked on before?
1: Salesforce has been perhaps the the best thing that's happened to me in my technical career. So I was lucky, right place, right time, to be, to be able to land a program uh, like Salesforce at the time. There was a program kicking off in my previous world for Salesforce Program of Works. Part of that program was implementing a debt recovery platform. So, And I'd done that in the past. In my previous experience, I'd built a debt recovery platform. In fact, I used to manage a debt team in the mortgage space. So the fact that I had that experience and the fact that I'd built a product around it gave me an opportunity to lead that program. I asked for it. Uh, and the business and the leaders at the time helped invest in both the technology and the getting me up to speed on Salesforce. So I was fortunate, just right place, right time. Uh there's I guess the CIO at the time was really great when it came to enable enabling teams and enabling the strategy of Salesforce. So I got a I got to learn from him how to think about Salesforce strategy. Salesforce, generally speaking, when I if I if I look back and see what projects I'd done in the past and how that helped or perhaps different from Salesforce. The one thing that was that helped at least in the context of my previous experience is I'd done a lot of object oriented work in, in the previous world as well. And a lot of the integration between calls that I'd worked on and, and delivered on projects. So that was perhaps, uh, there was no difference in this, in the way that Salesforce integrates with other platforms and or how the data model works within Salesforce. So that was, that was useful in my previous experience that I could, uh, I could move into the Salesforce world. And one of the things I like the most, I guess, is, in my previous life, I had to worry about things like infrastructure, redundancy, disaster recovery, security, performance, you name it. You have to think about every aspect before you implement a project. But with Salesforce, I didn't have to. I had to, well, all of that is managed. So I don't have to worry about some of those basics. You still have to think about how you're going to build and how you're going to, how you're going to worry about security and, and, and perhaps scalability, uh, in the way you, you're approaching your build, but you, don't have to worry about some of the basic fundamentals. So that was my first experience with true SaaS, Uh, And it really helped not worrying about some of the basics and focus on learning the platform and perhaps the features that you're delivering.
0: Was um, just, just out, that, because I, I know the company you're working for, and I know the kind of time scale, just from a resourcing perspective, when you first moved into the Salesforce world, was it more difficult to attract Salesforce talent than what you'd been used to in other technologies? Not at the time.
1: So if I, if I look back, you know, we're talking now 2015, 16. In general terms, Salesforce talent has been harder to source forward than other tech. Back in 2016, uh, 15, 16, it wasn't as intense as it is now. You are in the, you are perhaps in the, in the leading space of that. So you understand that space a lot better. So back in 2015, 16, I don't think it was as intense. Uh, nowadays it's completely, it's completely nuts. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was hard all the same even then. And it was a, it was a growing platform at the time, right? So at the time, Salesforce and MuleSoft weren't one business. So if you were doing something with Salesforce and MuleSoft, there weren't necessarily any integrations. You had to build everything from ground up. Now over time, things have just become even more perhaps easier in that context that you are probably going to get someone that understands both.
0: Mm-hmm. So you um, you spent a, a period of time with that company um, working on a, a transformation, and then your next move was into the consulting world. So, what was it that attracted you to consulting? And the the role that you took on, I, I think straight away was the COO role, right? Yes. So consulting is what I did,
1: right? At Unisys, that's that's what their business was. It's all mm-hmm. I did uh, for ten years, uh, both uh, you know in the ITO and BPO space, particularly BPO. When I left Unisys, I took a gap year and I traveled around Australia with my family for a while. And, you know, that gave me some time to think about what I want to do next. And what I wanted to do next is not do consulting because I'd done it for 10 years and I wanted to be in the customer shoes. And to me, at least, grass is greener on the other side or was greener on the other side. So when I came back, I wanted to be on the customer side and I got a chance to work on that. After delivering that program of works at uh, uh, Salesforce programs of work, what i what I perhaps realized is the reason I grew fast in Unisys at the time is because I had an opportunity to work on different projects, that I had opportunity to work on different clients. I had an opportunity to interact with different businesses. When you work for a customer side, you don't necessarily have that. You, you know, at least not to the extent of what you get in, in an NSI or consulting business. So that's what attracted me back to consulting. I just wanted to go back because I knew. That growth was better. I was learning a lot more. And that's how I ended up back in consulting. The CEO role was more around delivery operations. And it was perhaps one of the most rewarding and the hardest role I've ever done. As a CEO, I'm an advisor to your, to my customers. I'm responsible for delivering the, the, the promise. I'm also the escalation point. I'm also the people leader. I'm also there to drive new, new improvements, change ways of working, all the while still trying to manage and hire people for growth. And especially in a business like SaaS focus that was growing fifty percent, sixty percent year on year. At one point, hundred percent year on year. The the keeping up with the talent acquisition was uh, was equally a harder challenge. So yeah, it stretched me. It stretched me. It stretched me big. But I enjoyed it. I enjoyed every second of it. I think I I got a chance to grow in that business a lot. And a lot of the previous experience. It felt like everything was lining up for that event, for that moment in my life when I was when I when I was offered the CEO role. Uh, all the experience I had in program management, program delivery, non Salesforce tech, and then Salesforce, all led to that role uh, where I, I was able to draw on my previous experience of program management uh, and absolutely learn new skills.
0: Yeah. And that company was acquired, and and I think um, you know, acquire companies being acquired isn't um, abnormal in the Salesforce ecosystem, but they sometimes just kind of seem to happen, right? So. For people that are in the market and might not be working for the partner that's being acquired, or even sometimes people that are working for the partner that's being acquired, sometimes they, they kind of don't see what goes on behind that, the, the groundwork to that point. So what is the process typically like um, for a company being acquired? Like what goes into that behind the scenes before the announcement's made? This was my third acquisition. Uh, so this wasn't my first, uh, first acquisition gig.
1: In the past 15 odd years, uh, I'd gone through three different businesses that were acquired by someone else. So I kind of I was used to that already. And it was one of the reasons why I was brought on board uh, in SaaS Focus as well, that, uh, you know, that was always the intent and therefore be part of the journey and look at what are some of the foundations that we need to establish then for the acquisition. The real challenge, I think, what people don't see behind the scenes is outside of the acquisition activities, that, you know, talk, forget the, the contractuals and the commercials. Uh, there's tons of painstaking work that goes in and an army of people that are trying to align business processes, cultures, delegations, structures. And each aspect of this takes weeks, takes people time to be able to align on and agree uh, on the different aspects. So for example, if you look at a large organization, a large organization's most most large organizations are hierarchical. You know, they'll have senior manager, manager, associate directors, directors, that level of, of hierarchy that has different pay grades, different, uh, different perks and so on and so forth. When you look at a business that is being acquired, mostly they won't have that. There will be a very flat structure. So just being able to align each person to that grade or to that level takes weeks of effort. You know, it's not just about, uh, some, data that is used, but it's also about management overlays to consider what are some of the things that we should consider for people and not to be able to eventually come up with this person goes here. And, you know, nine out of 10 times it works, uh, but then one out of 10 times it, it won't work. And that requires more discussions, uh, I guess, more exceptions handling. Uh, and that's just one example. If I look at a, you know, another example would be a decision matrix. Uh, how, how a boutique business would make decisions would be literally people walking up to the CEO, CO, CO, which, whoever, or your leader in general, uh, have a conversation that decisions made on the spot. In a larger business, in a, you know, in a, in a GSI type business, those decisions don't necessarily get made by one person. There are multiple, uh, delegations that are given to people. Uh, and then you have to kind of step back and consider how do you give how do you ensure you don't stifle the the leadership that is being acquired, and yet still keep them within the realms of the delegation uh, matrix that is within the existing organization, right? So uh, those are just a couple of examples to give you a little bit of a flavor of what are some of the things that you we have to go through uh, to be able to land on, you know, yes, now it's going to work, and this is how we
0: will integrate with the with the business that is acquired. And these conversations are typically happening quite often, right? So we we obviously, we see a couple of companies be acquired a year, but there's kind of ongoing discussions behind the scenes, right? Where, um, you know, there'll be someone that's looking to make an acquisition and there's companies out there that are open to being acquired, um, but the timing might just not be right. And and then all of a sudden it is right. Mm -hmm. And then the delegation... Um, of uh, of people turn up to, to go through all of the, uh, the documentation and go through all, all the financials and so on. And then eventually the deal is made. But there's kind of people having discussions all the time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I would say, you know, in, uh, without speculating on others, but the first conversations never are the ones that actually result in the acquisition, or at least not generally speaking. Uh, most of the most of the smaller boutiques will be talking to multiple people or multiple organizations will be approaching them over the over a course of a few years some work some don't uh and at least for uh for us some of the thinking was around culture fitment uh and you know hands down to the team that actually did the acquisition uh that actually did the integration work they did a really phenomenal job for us the due diligence includes you know, is there a cultural alignment with the business that we're about to merge with? And if the answer is yes, then at least you know you kind of take the take the team that you have and integrate them, okay? But if there isn't, you know, the, culturally speaking, they're so different, then it's just not going to work. Uh, and I've seen some really horrible examples of integrations and acquisitions, uh, and some good examples, including SaaS focus. So yeah, absolutely, those conversations happen long before. I guess uh, any documentation is signed and the deal is done.
0: And what what makes a company valuable? Is it the people? Is it the track record? Is it the client base? Like what? Because you, you know you see some of these acquisitions where then people leave straight away, and you, you think to yourself, well, you know, were they acquiring that business because of those people, or or is it just the you know the the brand? And and I guess it all comes together, right? But is it is it predominantly the people in the team that that put the value to the acquisition? Hundred percent
1: like you said, you know, there're obviously multiple things that make a business valuable, but a but a services business is nothing but people. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh when a when a business is being acquired, they're acquiring the business because they believe in the people's ability to grow that business uh, and having seen that track record of that growth is the reason why someone would buy any business, I guess. But in services business when you don't have a product behind you per se, That you are providing services, those services are at the back of the people that are part of that business. So, if there was, if you were looking at one answer, then it would be absolutely the people.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which is, uh, and then that's why the merge and you know having that culture right is so important because otherwise that's when we see people kind of upping and leaving within weeks of an acquisition going through.
1: Yeah. And you know the the example that I gave you for uh, in the when people when we're trying to integrate people and trying to work out which which grade they go on and stuff. Those are some important factors. People leave because they don't feel that they were given the right levels or they're given the right seniorities because all of a sudden, that becomes relevant. And I'm just using this as an example. I've seen this in the past couple of acquisitions. And getting those things right, which is all leading up to the integration and perhaps post-acquisition uh, post and into the integration, is key, is the absolute important aspect of any acquisition.
0: Mm-hmm. So again, we'll we'll continue focusing on partners because at the moment everyone seems to be growing, right? Everyone's hiring, everyone's predicting growth. Um, our annual survey, you know, people were predicting huge amounts of growth. How do companies, how does a, a partner um kind of assess their pipeline for the year and then determine, you know, how much growth they expect and need? Um is it is there a, a really accurate formula behind this, or is it just, you know, we'll hire anyone that's good and and hope we have projects coming through for them? <laughs>
1: uh yeah, we could spend hours on this point but uh we won't <laughs> uh, the honest truth is there is no magic formula and if there was one and now i can give i can walk you through at least the my thought process around it as uh in sas focus but uh the the reality is anything that i did do uh was quickly thrown out because covid changed all the dynamics you know, for example, if I, if I give you the two or three lenses of what we, what I used to apply, uh, in the context of growth and, uh, being able to hire people, the, the first aspect of that is capacity planning, right? I know the people that I need, the number of people that I need to be able to achieve a set growth, uh, rate. So if I know that I need to grow my business by 50% next year, then I know that I need X number of extra people, both onshore and offshore to be able to achieve that outcome. Then I know I need to factor attrition in it. I know that there will be some level of attrition in our business, and therefore I need to proactively hire for that as well. And then the third lens in in all of that is my track record so far. So what have, what have I done month on month or quarter on quarter in terms of previous growth? And how does that pipeline convert? How quickly do they convert? What's the average conversion rate, and so on and so forth? Right. For example, it takes us thirty days to close a deal. That I know I have thirty days to hire ahead. And I know what the probability of that opportunity is because I'm talking to customers on practically the daily daily basis. So that was the norm before COVID mm-hmm. that you, know, you could do that mathematically to some degree of confidence to say, I'm not gonna have a problem. I'm already talking to these customers. I know my track record is this. I know my relationships are going X and I know the market, so I need to hire ahead. COVID threw all of that out. If I was growing 50% before, now I'm growing 100%. Everybody wants cloud. Everybody wants uh, SaaS. So none of my previous models work. In that context, I'm sure everybody tried different t- uh, tricks and techniques. But for us, for me particularly, it was important to stay on top of the conversations. If I have 20 salespeople talking to different uh, to different businesses, I need to know every conversation they're having. I need to know how close they are to that conversation, and because Everybody needed lead time. I mean, you you were at the forefront of this, so you would know this. If I'd come to you and said, I need somebody now in 2015, 16, I would get that person in the next couple of days. And it was the same same conversation with our own talent acquisition teams, right? It was, they needed lead time to be able to go out there in the market and apply all their tips and tricks to be able to hire. So the only thing that worked for us, or for me particularly, is being able to stay on top of those conversations knowing that attrition is just normal in this market. For, for a good couple of years, that's been normal. So we need to allow for that, factor for that. We were lucky. We didn't have as bad an attrition rate, but all the same, still had to factor that in and then keep hiring. There was a level of judgment in all of this. You know, When you know that there are so many conversations going, you don't sit there with a pen and paper and go, I need to hire five people and 10 people. You just go out and say, well, we need to hire 30 people because we know we will continue to grow. Those were really you know, simple things to do. Mathematics kind of went out of the way uh, as soon as COVID hit and people started pivoting to cloud.
0: So it's interesting because I remember when COVID did first hit, everyone was still a little bit unsure. And I know obviously quite quickly it became apparent that there was going to be a lot of growth and demand, but there were like some consulting companies um, stood down staff or, or reduced pay and um, some, some let people go. You know, I know of some uh, that had, had signed up um, new employees to join and then pulled the offers right at the beginning of COVID. So was it really apparent mm. to you that quickly that there was going to be this demand? Or did you ever have concerns about being able to, to keep your, your initially keep your team engaged and on projects?
1: I think uh, if we're talking the first, let's look at the first quarter of COVID, then yeah, I think everybody was nervous. We didn't know what was going to come. There wouldn't be a single leader that was not worried about uh, what's going to come next. The good thing for us was, I think I wasn't at, I guess the utilization of the business was so high at the time and we had so much going already and none of the clients had actually pulled projects, which was one of the key reasons why people were getting nervous, mm-hmm. uh, that they were, where they were end customers that were kind of putting projects on hold and on, on the back burner until they saw what was happening and, uh, what was, what was the outcome of COVID, right? We were lucky that some of our, most of our customer base didn't do that. None of the projects went on, the backburners didn't go on hold, so our utilization remained high. And by the time we kind of, the dust settled on, you know, what is COVID going to bring or what, what is the adoption going to be like, things had already started peaking. So we were going on the opposite side where clients are going, well, I need 10 of this and I need 20 of this. And everybody's struggling because a lot of the consulting companies had, like you rightly said, had let go of people. So all of a sudden, we started seeing demand that was also by default coming to to us because of others not being able to fulfill it. So there were there was multiple factors for that. We were just I think fortunate at the time that we had a we had clients that didn't put projects on hold and therefore didn't need to go through that cycle of pulling offers or letting people go or reducing salaries. None of that happened for us.
0: Obviously, um, we, we spoke about when you first got into the ecosystem and, and how hard hiring was at that point. Like it, it wasn't anywhere near as difficult as now. But but genuinely for for people that don't understand how difficult it is to, to like to hire a really good Salesforce developer or a really good architect in Australia right now, like what, what was your take on that when you were in that hiring capacity in your last organization? Like just how difficult was it to find someone?
1: Uh, very. And it becomes even more difficult when you're trying to hire in in distributed uh, manner. So different geos, different locations, different skills. I guess the the cloud engineering skills, like developer, architect in particular, uh, and tech leads, if I was to highlight those three, were the hardest ones to hire for. And to be honest, I think I found also that even if you did manage to hire someone, whether they would stick around or not was another question altogether. Mm-hmm. Whether they would even join on day one was another question. Uh, so just because they've accepted the offer doesn't necessarily mean people would join. And pre-COVID, that frankly, wasn't the norm. If somebody had signed a contract, they would join it. It was the norm in uh, in, in the job market overseas, but certainly not in Australia. That changed. In Australia, it started happening as well, that people would sign contracts and still not turn up. So it was hard to find people. And I think everyone worked on all six all the time to be able to fulfill demand. And I mean everyone, the talent acquisition teams, the the recruiters, the partner, partner recruiters, uh, HR teams, the hiring managers. Everyone had to constantly try and balance things. Not you know, not just go and put ads out and think, well, people would apply. You had to leverage your own network. You had to go out and uh, and on LinkedIn and start messaging people. And it wasn't just leaving it to tag or HR teams. We had to do it ourselves. I personally had to sit there and start sending messages, going, "Do you want to be part of this team?" Uh, you know, giving them a perspective of what it is, uh, what it is like to be part of SaaS focus. I didn't want people. To hear it third hand, second hand, because I found that wasn't very powerful. But at the very, when I was there doing it myself, that, that worked better, at least because they were hearing it from, from the horse's mouth, I guess. So any, I guess any trick and trip, uh, that was applied perks, salary, retention strategies, everything was being thrown at at least those top skills that, uh, developers, technical lead and architects to be able to one, retain them and to hire new talent. That was hot
0: you've been out of the the hiring manager role for a little while now i can tell you nothing's changed <laughs> <laughs> we ask recruiters say that we have the hardest sales job in the world because it's the only sales role where the product candidates can say no you know you you, you sell an it solution and the, the there's nowhere the solution pulls out it might not be the right solution but at least it, it says yes you know yeah. whereas yeah that's been the biggest challenge is um, is that kind of commitment issue and you know, finding people that that are um, true to their word. And, you know, we've seen all sorts of crazy things over the last few years, like people working multiple contract roles, being paid by two companies at the same time. Like, it kind of turned into the Wild <laughs> West.
1: I agree, mate. I agree. I've, last two years have been, have been interesting, an eye-opener, to be honest. How people, how some people, I shouldn't generalize, but how some people have reacted to that, you know, two jobs, Yes. Okay. I will do both because you're working from home. I guess that there, there's no aspect of being in the office. Yeah. People have taken advantage of that. Uh, rightly or wrongly, I, I won't debate it, but yeah, it's, it's been an interesting ride, I'm sure. And for you, I'm sure and on most recruiters, to be honest, one of the things that we, and I think it's the, the most underrated, uh, untalked about, I should say, uh, is the, the stress or the mental health stress that is, that this period has particularly taken on those that are, uh, frankly, in your shoes, uh, in hiring shoes, in talent acquisition roles, or in HR roles. They've worked tirelessly because the demand hasn't gone away. Yeah, and the the behavior of uh, those that are wanting to join businesses has changed. Uh, there is no precedence of it unless you've come from a country that already had that previously. So it's it's. Kudos to the, everybody. And I was lucky, and I have to say this, I was lucky that I had the best team ever that supported me in that time. Otherwise, I would have just gone mad. Uh, but it would have been hard for for most people in that in those shoes like yourselves.
0: Yeah, and I think the good thing from a recruitment perspective to come out of this period is, um, I think talent acquisition as a function now has a seat at the table within a business. Like, not, not just external providers, but that talent acquisition internal function is is seen as more than just a you know function that finds people for roles, and I, I think that's yep. you know it's it's valued a lot more because no business can grow without talent, and talent isn't just putting an advert on on a job board. You know there there is a real strategy behind that from from you know way before you hire right through to, to retention and, and offboarding people. So I think uh, that that's that yeah definitely the perception of of the role of a recruiter within a, a business has changed. Hundred hmm. percent. Uh, i couldn't agree more so um saskuru so your, your new venture you, you've stepped out of the world of um, consulting um and uh, and you, you've taken on a new challenge with a new startup business so what was it that really excited you about the vision of, of saskuru driving change that's if i was to if i
1: was to call out one thing it's driving change i, t- I talked about it earlier as well uh, for me what drives me is being able to affect change and knowing that i'm part of a business that whose entire mission is about changing the way education is being perceived, particularly technology education is being, is being handled today, uh, is, is what excites me. It's, it's, it's what that gets me out of bed every morning. The industry that Sasguru is in, the EdTech industry, I believe is at a cusp of major overhaul. We've seen a lot of micro innovation in this space, but none at a macro innovation level. We've gone from classroom type Training and certification prep to MOOCs type, where it's all online based. But so, and that's why I call it micro innovation. But not necessarily anything that has been major where the way we are training people or we are getting them ready for a job, which is the end outcome of all of this, uh, uh, hasn't been, hasn't changed a whole lot. People are still trying to work out what courses they need to go through, what should they do. So yeah, that's that's really uh making it accessible for everyone and changing the way training currently works in the edtech space uh is what excites me uh and that's the reason why I started the business
0: having worked for a major global brands you know Cognizant um Unisys back in the day and um and and obviously having experienced the kind of bigger end of town and and the more kind of um, I guess lots of red tape. Um, I would imagine, um, you know, decisions take a lot longer to be approved or to go through. What's it like now going into that kind of startup world where everything's new and, you know, everyone's kind of looking to, to make a, a huge impact?
1: Really great. Yeah. It's very different to the likes, the, you know, the, the larger organization type, uh, roles, but I, I like the hustle of startup. I like the fact that I'm, if I, if I'm not physically busy, I'm mentally busy nonstop. Uh, and you know you wake up with an idea and i it's it's genuinely speaking that's what it is i wake up every morning going shit we could try this uh, why don't we try this and then you end up with a list of things that you want to do uh, you're learning new skills every day you want to try new things all the time uh, and the only thing that you can't do is stretch any further so just because you've got a list 10 10 mile long doesn't necessarily mean i can i can do all of it so you know, ruthless prioritization and discipline perhaps are the two best friends that I now have. What I enjoy about, I guess, the the SaaS guru as a as a business, the brand uh, is the fact that I get know, a, a sense of purpose in in my bones. If that makes any sense, it's so different to being in a larger organization that I can wake up in the morning, I can think of something, and
0: I can try and experiment with that right now, right there. Um, is what i enjoy the most absolutely and and you you've touched on the kind of um the skills that are difficult to find in the salesforce ecosystem but and um, what are you seeing as as the biggest um like i guess the biggest gaps and the biggest challenges to recruit for businesses um, across the board and um and how mm. a are, are sasguru playing a role to solve that problem Mate, good question when we talk about talent
1: in general terms right forgetting the the depth of it if you just look at it at a you know fifty thousand feet that talent just doesn't exist. So we need to find how to create that talent. That is the basic problem. What I and I, I think about this a lot only because I guess I'm in a business that I need to. There are a lot of hiring managers, a lot of people in larger businesses that still think of talent in the same traditional way that they were thinking a few years ago. We're still looking for a number of years of experience. We're still looking for uh, you know, what previous jobs have they had? Have they got uh have they got a specific skill set before we would even hire uh, and it's on their resume yes or no and the exclusion criteria still exist you know some resumes are just being not even being assessed they don't even get a seat to the table the first time around because their their resumes are kind of filtered up I don't understand why that part is not evolving knowing that there is such shortage in skills the natural aspect of that would be fine let's find where the next talent is and the next talent is Either those that are pivoting their careers and wanting to get into, I'm using Salesforce as an example, but wanting to get into Salesforce, or they are grads coming out of universities and even better, they're sitting in high schools today. Like that's that's the only places we can get people from. So the fact that, ex- that exclusion criteria still exist, frankly, disappoints me as, as, as a cohort of IT, as leaders in IT, we should do different, we should do better. Uh, we can change this dynamic of shortage of skills, but we need to all do our part in that. So that's, I guess, just at a macro level. In terms of shortage of skills, all cloud engineering developers, architects are in high high demand. And that's just across the board. You look at Salesforce, you look at AWS, you look at ServiceNow, you look at GCP, Azure, you name it. Every technology, because we're now covering multi-technologies in, in SaaS Guru in terms of training and enablement, I'm kind of seeing the same problem everywhere. And the way I'm approaching it at the moment is short-term goals and long-term goals, right? Short-term goals. If you think about what are need, what's needed right now is there are three things. People need certs. That just it beca- it is still the step into a, a into it a, uh, into a, their first job. Uh, cert prep space in its entirety is vastly ignored. People are still they you know you've got a scale of either I'm going to help someone. Go through certification or worse, unethically, they'll take dumps and then try and learn from that. We all know that. So what SAS Guru is doing in that space is we kind of flipped it. We've said we've, we've got a technology solution. Yes, we have mock exams, but they are built from scratch. They are, they are built by leaders in the, in that space. So AWS, Salesforce, uh, ServiceNow, you name it. And the technology is helping them, have help, helping them, uh, with a, what we call a cert readiness score and telling them, are you ready for your cert? Yes or no? And it's just that simple. Some smarts, some AI that's driving that logic, of course, but at the end of the day, we've got a 98% success rate. So if our platform says you're ready, 98% chance that you are actually going to pass the certification. So cert prep is the single most important category in in the sense that they are able to use that to get their foot through the door. The second aspect is training. And I've seen training the same training costing almost nothing to thousands of dollars and again just in your in your context talking salesforce what we're trying to do is the training itself isn't just about salesforce that's not what makes job ready folks uh they need consulting skills they need uh, industry skills they need advisory skills soft skills so how do we create a holistic person who's able to walk through the interview get through the door the first time round and for businesses that they don't have to spend six months training and educating someone to upskill, right? Uh, so that's the second aspect of where SaaS Guru is trying to bridge the gap. Uh, we've now launched only last week, actually. Uh, it starts in a couple of days, I think. Uh, we've launched a bootcamp and the bootcamp is specifically targeted uh, towards people where we teach them consulting skills. We teach them how to how to write business cases, what our advisors doing in that space, and then give them hands-on project work Where they can apply all of those learnings from day one in their new employment. The last aspect of short term goals is cost of training and certification is the largest barrier when we speak to any of our, any of the 16, 17,000 learners. Uh, cost uh, cost uh, Cost of training, right? So we're trying to work out a way where we can build EMI type schemes, income share agreement type schemes that allows them to learn now. And think about paying later once they have a job, so that's another aspect of what we're trying to cover in from a SAS group perspective. That gives me a sense of at least short-term goals over the next six to twelve months. That's what we want to what we would want to apply and affect change. Long-term, and that's long-term, is still a constant thought. You know, it perhaps it's more about experimentation than anything else. Uh, I talked about where the skills lie. The skills lie. In, in my mind, and this is just my personal view, the skills lie in high schools today. There are kids that are already aware of how cloud works, how SaaS works. You give them a task, they're able to do it. Uh, one of SaaS Guru's learners is a 13 year old girl that's just passed their Salesforce, certif- Salesforce admin certification, right? So the, it's for the new generation of kids, a lot of this is intuitive. So for, for me, I'm trying to experiment with long term. How do we, train an an army of our high school kids who are the future and get them upskilled so they don't go through four years of undergrad, two years of master's, and then land their first job in IT. They're ready now if we train them. That's at least a thought. So long term, that's where I'm kind of targeting to access the skill from.
0: And I believe you're also you, you work with companies, right? So to to help um, bring people through for for opportunities that they would have coming up, like a you know a global SI might have need to hire X amount of people and, and can partner with you to to get people job ready. Is that right?
1: Yeah, hundred uh, percent. In fact, we've got a we've got a lot of uh, lot of large SI GSI customers uh, where we're training their cohorts, we're training their people, so they've hired people themselves but then asked us to train them, get them consulting ready, get them Salesforce ready so that they are perhaps, they hit the ground running uh, in in the first eight to 10 weeks type things. So yeah, we we do a lot of that. We do both B2B and B2C in that context.
0: Yeah, amazing. So if there's anyone listening that is kind of interested in exploring that further, um, be that B2B or B2C, um, where's the best place to find you and to, to reach out?
1: So Saskuru co .co. www.sasguru.co. All the information is on the website. Frankly, I I would love to have those conversations directly. So reach out to me directly on my email uh, or through LinkedIn. Happy to have any conversations and help coach, mentor, individuals that are wanting to be part of the Salesforce ecosystem, AWS ecosystem, ServiceNow ecosystem. Just reach out and uh, I'll help and support in any way I can. SASGuru has a Slack community as well. So if you go to sasguru.co, there's a Slack community of thousands of people that are kind of collaborating uh in in bridging the gaps of skills, in cross-training, in learning. So if you have any questions, anyone has any questions around where to go next, just post it in that community. Uh, there's a group of gurus that would help. In fact, one of the key things that we're trying to drive is build our build a world-first SaaS community that brings all of the technologies together, all the advice, all the guidance is in that one community. So reach out, go to www.sasguru.co, and you'll be able to become part of the Slack community as well as reach out to me directly.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed hearing about your journey and, and some of your advice on working in consulting growing consulting businesses. And and yeah, it was it was interesting to get your take on the challenges of hiring through COVID as well, because I, I felt that pain for sure. Um, and really exciting to see the growth and, and future endeavors of Sasguru and some big lofty goals to achieve. So looking forward to seeing you hit them. Thanks, mate. I really appreciate you having me. Thank you very much. So that's a wrap for this week's episode and thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the chat and if you did please make sure you have subscribed for future episodes that are coming through. I would also be very grateful if you would consider leaving a review on your chosen podcast platform as five star reviews will help us to reach more trailblazers from across the world. I look forward to sharing another episode with you soon and thanks again.